Hi, welcome to the Phoenix Athens podcast. Our mission at Phoenix Athens is to make disciples who experience, enjoy, and display God's love and glory. Our goal with this podcast is to provide a way for you to learn and grow with us as a church body. If you're more visual, you can watch these sermons on our YouTube channel linked below. We hope this episode encourages and edifies you. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Would you guys uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 2 and stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God together with me? Let me get there. If you are new or haven't been here in a little while, I'm just going to bring you up to speed. This is, I think, maybe week seven um, of a series that we felt led to lead our people through, to walk through about spiritual warfare. And we've talked about a lot of different things. And so we are continuing in here. And uh, listen, if you really want revival, if you really want to see a movement of God, you better be ready. Even in the outpouring, there is such a need for believers to realize who they are, their identity, to realize who they're up against, and to realize where they are in comparison to this enemy. So today, I am going to preach on the enemy's defeat and the believer's authority. We can't afford to miss this. We have to understand what's going on. And so I just want to read a little bit of scripture today that gives us direction on this. We'll start with Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 6. It says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. I'm going to stop there and and reiterate what's going on. See through this, through the the meta-narrative of Scripture that God gave a promise to his people. Live according to my way, it will go well with you. He gave it to the people he had raised up in the Israelites. And he gave them the law. And through that, there was a sign of his commitment to them and their commitment to him called circumcision, which is a physical circumcision of the flesh that the men, the Israelites, lived by. It was part of their commitment to him and, and, and his sign uh, towards them and for them. Right? But he's saying now when Christ came, you guys have received now, you who belong to God have received a circumcision just like that, but not a physical one. You've received a spiritual one. It's one not done by hands, but by Christ. In order that your flesh would be removed. Now, you see the imagery that's being used here, that your flesh, your desire to live according to the deeds of the flesh have been removed from you on the cross. Then we have the gift of baptism. 
having been buried with him in baptism. That's why we say buried, um, <coughs> buried, <coughs> excuse me, buried with Christ in baptism, right? We die to our old self. We die to sin, raised to walk in the newness of life. You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come through the cross. Having been buried with him in baptism, verse 12, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. Let me rephrase that. By canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, against you, with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Thank you. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. <clears throat> Those are spiritual rulers and authorities, Satan and his demons. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in the cross. Satan is mentioned as an accuser who, who constantly accuses the brethren. Why? Because there was a law that where there is sin, there must be death. There must be consequences. And according to this, it was the teeth <clears throat> that the enemy had and saying, mm -mm, they don't deserve this, they don't deserve this, they deserve this. They should be tortured, they should be, they should be uh, just condemned. They should receive the worst of the worst constantly. But Jesus took the record of debt of every single sin you've ever committed and the penalty that goes along with that he walked in front of you and goes, Sh -t 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 just let the file roll out to the floor. And then he grabbed it. And on Jesus' cross, he... Paid in full. So that the enemy, when he condemns you, can say, this is a worthless sinner who deserves death disarmed the enemy from being able to speak that against you. And through what seemed to be the defeat of Christ on the cross, it actually became the victory of Christ on the cross. And through faith in what he has done, you are united with him in death and in resurrection. Death is a gift and a pathway to victory. Yeah. And now you've been seated with Christ on high. He who has been placed above all rulers and authorities and powers, 
They are as a footstool underneath his feet. You've been seated together with him. Your life is hidden with Christ on high. He triumphed over them. This word here is used also, I think, in 1 Corinthians. Um, I could be wrong about that. But used only other place as a triumphal procession, almost as a, a Roman general would come back having conquered his enemy and probably either has the enemy alive and in shame in tow behind or being dragged behind in a triumphant procession, putting to open shame the enemy. We sang this morning, why should my heart fear what you've defeated? Do you see why it's important for us to understand the enemy's defeat and the believer's authority? Why should you fear one second more that which has already been defeated? But I continue. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. You've heard me mention this. We're going to say this again. Because some of us are wondering, where is this all headed? Good news for you. He wrote it down. <laughs> Revelation chapter 12, actually beginning in verse 7. <clears throat> now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. Can I, just, can I just reiterate something? Who, who fought? Literally, say it out loud. Who fought? Jesus didn't even have to fight. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Listen to this. And they conquer him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Father, I pray that you would give us this wisdom and revelation that has been talked about this morning to understand what you have done and what that means for us. Pray that we would so love you with a reckless abandonment that we would not even love our lives unto death. As much as we love you, by the word of our testimony, Father, let us continue to overcome. Let us continue to walk in the victory you purchased for us on the cross. May we engage in spiritual warfare from the place of victory, not towards it. Open our eyes to understand your word this morning. In Jesus Christ, 
Amen. You may finally be seated. So how do we conquer the enemy? What did it say in Romans, uh, Revelation 12? Number one, first and way foremost, by the blood of the Lamb. You cannot go to church enough. You cannot pray enough. You cannot give away enough money. You can't tithe enough. You can't give to the poor. You can't serve in the soup kitchens. You can't love other people, be kind and compassionate. You can't do the things that you see Christians doing and hear uh, is preached even by Jesus or the things that you're supposed to do as a follower of Christ. You can't do enough to receive victory and conquer the enemy. It has to first and foremost be through the blood of the Lamb. It is through what Jesus did. We've talked about it before. I just we just can't miss it. Uh, just the the meta narrative of, of of the story of Scripture that you see here. By the blood of the Lamb, do not miss the Passover here. Do not miss that when God had Moses tell Pharaoh to let God's people go, and he refused to. That time after time, there would be another wave of punishment, of judgment for this decision, another plague. And it ultimately ended with the firstborn life being taken. Of all those who did not follow God's direction in saying, hey, go get a spotless lamb, kill it, take its blood and put it on the doorposts of the house. And at night, when the angel of death comes across, wherever it sees the blood, I've seen, I've seen a, um, like a meme or something like that before. I love it. Um, it talks about, hey, when the angel of death came, it didn't ask, are the people inside worthy enough? Are they good enough? Do they deserve death to be passed over? It just looked for the blood. And if the blood was there and the blood had covered the doorposts, then the angel of death would pass over and there would be no death in that household. You conquer through the blood of the Lamb. Jesus, who is the last and final atoning sacrifice for our sins and for the consequences of our sins, death and eternal separation from God, passed over through faith in Jesus being our Lamb. You conquer first and foremost through the blood of the Lamb. How else do we conquer? By the word of our testimony. What are some ways, what do you, what do you think that looks like? What are our ways that we can conquer through the word of our testimony? Jamie? So seeing, is that what you said, or singing? Seeing what Scripture says, right, about what is truth, and then what do you do with it? Because it's, mm -hmm, it's the word of our testimony. Yeah. Applying it. Yeah, that's what he said. For sure. Good. Daniel?
That's good. Could you guys hear that in the back? Yeah? Okay, good. Literally testifying of the goodness of God and how he meets us, and we found victory in moments. Sharing the gospel. <laughs> Word of our testimony. This is what Jesus did. This is how you can receive it as well. What else? Pastor? I, I like even like the, the, we don't pray to the enemy, right? But we can talk to him, especially when we're reminding him that he has lost, that he has, you have no place here. I, you have nothing to do with me. I have nothing to do with you. That's good. By the word of our testimony, speaking against the lies of the enemy. Anything else? Yeah, yeah, we, because maybe there's actually something true in what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. God is a very personal God. What about in uh, worship? Man, genuine, heartfelt worship unto the Lord is powerful. We've talked about how that's a weapon. This is how I find my battle, right? Like, no, for real, though. It's not actually like if I'm louder about it or if I'm more in tune. Somebody will like, praise Jesus. <laughs> but genuine, heartfelt worship unto the Lord is repugnant to an enemy. He does not like that. And I don't care. <laughs> you, see, you battle with thoughts in your mind. We've already talked about the word of your testament. Speak it out. The rhema, spoken word of God, is the sword of the spirit. It is a weapon, right? Like, speak it out. You want to add, like, a little cherry on top? Sing it out. Remind the enemy how wrong he is and how good God is. We conquer the enemy by the blood of the lamb and by the uh, word of our testimony, even as expressed in our prayers. I want to go real quick uh, for time's sake. I, I, I want to, as we talk about the authority of Scripture, I want to um, look at Luke chapter 10, okay? And you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 10. I'll, I'll give you a, a lead up here. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus sent out his, his disciples, his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority and told them, hey, go ahead, go into these cities and heal and, and, and pray and, and, and preach the kingdom. And he's getting ready now to do that with a larger audience of the 72. There's 72 that he's sending out two by two ahead to do the same thing here. And I want us to look at how they come back and what they say. In Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 17, it says, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
Authority is delegated power. I think the example that I've, I've used before is our authority is limited to that whom we represent. The example I gave was if, if the ambassador of Namibia like came to the White House is like I need excuse me like I need to speak with the president like my my country is thinking war not happy with you guys what would they say They'd be like I'm sorry do you guys even have an army who Namibia but if roles reversed and the ambassador to the United States came to wherever the Namibian headquarters are it was like, hey, my president's uh, not happy, and he's, uh, he's thinking war. You better believe that's going to carry a degree of weight, right? Because the ambassador, or the representative, the delegate, has power that is represented by he whom he represents. Don't forget that, ambassadors of Christ. Delegated power, that's what authority is. The spiritual power to enforce compliance with the law. We have already seen from Colossians 2 that Jesus fulfilled the law and instituted a new one under his reign and authority. He disarmed the enemy, he put them to open shame, and he triumphed over them in the cross. That means that when they try to harass someone who belongs to Jesus, they have to be reminded that there's a new chain of command. I want you to see this. When we talk about spiritual warfare and the authority of, of the believer, you are not in a horizontal tug of war with the enemy. It's a vertical chain of command. I'm going to say that again. Spiritual warfare is not a horizontal tug of war against the enemy. It's a vertical chain of command. To sit there and try to battle against the enemy in your own strength, in your own power, with your own wisdom, with your own efforts, is as foolish as it is theologically wrong. <laughs> you have been seated with Christ. All of the power and authority of the enemy has been placed underneath Christ. So just geographically here, physically, if you have been seated together with Christ, your life is hidden together with Christ, and he's been placed at the right hand of the Father and above all rule and all authority that are a footstool to him, where does that put the enemy, and where does that put you? You aren't meant to fight in your own power and strength. You fight with his power and his strength. You let him fight the battle. In the name of Jesus, there is power. So, do not stoop so low as to try to battle at the enemy's authority level. Don't stoop that low. And do not give him credit as though he is able to rise to the authority level of Christ. It is not a horizontal tug of war. It is a vertical chain of command. And you have been given authority think of Jonathan here in the room who understands this example pretty well, who served, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this on a recording or not, but 
no last names. He served in a position of authority in a neighboring country, right, to be able to enforce the laws. We have been given the authority to enforce the new law. The enemy who has been triumphed over, who has been defeated, why should your heart fear? Why should you get to his level? You stand in the authority that you have in Christ. He who lives in you is greater than he who lives in the world. I remember a couple summers ago, uh, our first internship, uh, when Daniel, uh, I just loved seeing like the transformation that was going on in his heart and what God was doing. And he was seeing and experiencing for the first time this authority like being worked out. He was kind of, I, I almost imagine Daniel, like I almost see your face when I like they're come back like, the demons were like subject to us in your name. Like I could see that he was like on fire. He was, he was, he was given opportunities to sit down and see uh, demons cast off of people, to be used in that manner. And I remember we did um, a lake retreat with our interns. And at this lake retreat, uh, we had this uh, counselor come in, and, and he was kind of sharing about how to, like, look at your life and build, like, a life vision, bringing in, like, your identity and calling and what the Lord seems to be doing and how to figure out, like, okay, how to create this life vision that's like, hey, because I am this, my identity, uh, and God has been doing this in my life, like, this is where I feel like the Lord is, like, leading me to go, right? And so they're creating this, uh, like, life vision statement, and Daniel, like, he's excited. Like, he walks up, and he, like, hands, he's like, this is what I got, right? And I'm like, okay, all right, I'm reading it. He's like, I am a demon slayer. Like, like, he is, like, he is so excited about, like, what God has been doing, like, going after them and, and stuff. And, and I looked back, and I'm, I kind of smiled, and I was like, I love, like, your heart and everything, but, like, let me just, l- let me make one small adjustment <clears throat> Your identity is not as a demon slayer. That's just a nap- natural repercussion of being the son of the king of kings and the lord of lords. Will that identity cause you to, at times, confront the enemy and deal with the enemy? Yeah. But who you are is so much more. So I'm not diminishing our role to cast out demons and deal with the enemy, but who you are is so much more. Your position is so much higher than that. You need to see that. The reminder is that the source of the power at work through us is not us. It is he who is in us. It is at the name of Jesus that everything must comply. A police officer has the authority that has been delegated to him and can only be used in the boundaries in which he has been assigned. Do you guys know what would happen if you pulled out of church today and you kind of cut off a Gwinnett County police officer and then just sped off? Do you know what would happen? Absolutely nothing. Because he has no jurisdiction here. Now, I want to make a caveat here. Please don't cut anybody off or, like, speed off. And you also need to know if he has the word sheriff next to his, his like, he actually does have authority in, in jurisdiction. So please don't get pulled over and get smart. Like, my pastor told me, you can't do that. Anymore. Like, that's not true. We shouldn't do anything that would require us to be pulled over. I'm just using as an example 
A standard Gwinnett County police officer does not have the jurisdiction to pull you over in Athens-Clark County. So there is a degree of the necessity to understand what's our jurisdiction when it comes to spiritual authority, right? I am, I am having to walk the line as a pastor today because I need you guys to understand and to operate with spirit, more spiritual authority than you might actually be realizing or operating in. However, I also need to, at the same time, not empower you to things you don't actually have the authority to do, okay? So come alive, take the biblical guidelines into consideration, so don't let that be like, well, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't even mess with it, shouldn't do anything. No, come alive, stand in the authority that you have, but remember what your jurisdiction is, all right? So we need to get our jurisdiction from Scripture, right? One, one question that came up as uh, we were preparing for this sermon series and you guys submitted questions to us was, hey, can you, can you talk about like the, the, the terms, I've heard the terms binding and loosing. What is that? Is that biblical? Like where is that at? Where does that come from? What does it mean? How can it be used or not? So I'm going to walk real quick through answering this question. Uh, so the first question is, where do these terms come from in Scripture? The primary passage, there's two of them that are, are joined together to kind of build this argument, is Matthew chapter 18, um, verse 18, which is in the middle of Jesus teaching his disciples about church discipline. And he says, quote, truly, truly, I say to you uh, that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, and... That's, that's joined in connection to Matthew chapter 12, verses 28 through 29. We're going to come back to these verses, by the way. I'm not like just skipping over it. And that's combined with Matthew chapter 12, verses 28 through 29, where Jesus is responding to accusations um, that he is casting out demons by the power of Satan or Beelzebub. Um, and he responds by saying in verse 28, but if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. In this illustration that, that Jesus is giving, the house, uh, the strong man is Satan, the house is his rule and reign and dominion, and the treasure or his goods are the people over which he has influence and control. And Jesus is saying, hey, I, I, like, how, how can the house even be plundered if the strong man isn't tied up first? And so he is pointing to the fact that um, maybe a stronger power than Satan is in front of you. And he has more strength and more authority than Satan does, and by that power, he is releasing and freeing the prisoners who have been demonized. In this example, he literally cast out a demon from an individual. So in particular, with something like deliverance ministry, and I've made sure that Stephen's going to talk about that uh, next week. <laughs> Just kidding. For real, though. But, um, and in dealing with someone who may be demonized, we see in Jesus' example that there seems to be a degree of binding or overpowering, if you will, um, the enemy in order to loosen the stronghold that he had over people. Uh, in Scripture, it says that for this reason, Jesus came to um, destroy the works of the enemy. Uh, and that word destroy, literally one of the translations in the Greek means to loosen. 
Whatever, whatever, whatever had been done, he came to loosen, undo, to destroy those works. Um, and so a lot of people from those get, uh, use the idea of, of binding and loosing. Um, yeah, so I'm going to walk through a couple of important observations for us from these two texts. Um, in the Matthew 18 account, so that's where Jesus told the disciples uh, that wherever they, uh, about binding and loosing, um, and it'll be done in heaven. First of all, it's important to understand that in Jewish history, the terms binding and loosing were actually common. This wasn't like the first time, like he said this, and they're all like, <gasps> all of a sudden there's a new like ability and authority to like bind and loose. Like wh- what is this newness, right? They, they were familiar with these terms, but the terms binding and loosing in Jewish history were used to bind or forbid something and loose or allow, permit and they actually never dealt with spiritual, uh, sorry, with, yeah, like uh, spiritual warfare matters. They were legal matters. As leaders, this is, this is forbidden or this is allowed. Um, and so that's the background history. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not saying that you can't use them in spiritual warfare. I'm just building a history here. Uh, also, Jesus was teaching his disciples in the Matthew 18 account in the context of church discipline. And them having to make difficult decisions that may even lead them to, at times, remove somebody from the church, is what it was saying. Hey, if, if somebody sins against you, go to them. If they are unrepentant, then bring another brother or sister along with you, right, and go to them. If they still aren't, then bring it up before the church. If they are still unrepentant, then remove them from the church. That's the context that the, the, the passage, whatever you bind on earth... And whatever you loose on earth, being bound or loose in heaven, is, is written in. And I think that it's also really important to understand, there's a few things, like different translations do different things, and there never seems to be an absolutely perfect one all the way around. But one of the things that I think, it's, it's right there, and there's probably even maybe a footnote in this passage in your scripture um, that says what the original Greek actually says, which I think would makes it a lot more uh, understandable, is um, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Why is that important? Because instead of it seeming like I get to make a decision that heaven has to follow, it actually points towards um, I get in line and align myself with what heaven has said. And that's important because the next two verses, which are often taken and used out of context, can even seem to, to encourage the whole, like, I can make a decision and heaven responds. I can make this and heaven has to answer or, or, or agree with that. Um, but we'll go into those in, in a minute. We'll come back to that. Let's jump again back to Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus is responding to being accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Uh, remember and take this as a part of a greater whole, right? Jesus is giving this example of, of, of binding the strong man, again, to reemphasize who he is. Yeah, I cast out Satan, but like you're trying to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit by saying it's by the power of Satan that I'm doing this. And he's saying a house divided can't stand. 
That's not what the case is. Perhaps something greater, something stronger has come in. He's exerting his, his position of authority and power over the enemy in this instance. But you also have to remember that um, this isn't the first like, encounter that Jesus has had with demons or with Satan. If we go back several chapters in the beginning of the gospel, we see that after Jesus is baptized, where does the Holy Spirit take him? Into the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness? He's tempted by who? Satan. And how does that end? Jesus wins, right? Jesus, what does Jesus tell him in the last verbal encounter of that specific instance? Be gone from me. Go away from me. So in a degree, to a degree, Jesus rebuked Satan and told him to depart from him. Was that a forever departure? Did Jesus, from that moment on, never have to do with demons or even Satan himself again? No, he wasn't. In fact, Satan would come back. Jesus would have to rebuke Satan, trying to speak through Peter. And then we know for a fact that Satan entered into Judas when he betrayed him and even came and kissed him on the cheek. That Judas was filled with Satan. So even Jesus, when he rebuked the enemy, it wasn't this, I bind you and you're forever, like, like Satan's just like sitting in the house, like bound, and he can't get out of the house and he's stuck forever. There's this degree of we need to understand that even in Jesus' example that it's not a he has been bound and is forever bound from that thing or that individual or that action because we see that he continues to work in the world and his demons continue to work in the world. So we need to keep that understanding that we don't have the position, position to just eternally bind. There will come a day, and if we read, were to read the rest of Revelation, we will find out that there is coming a day where they will be bound they will be cast into the abyss forever, and there will be a lake of fire that they will be cast into. Satan, the beast, the Antichrist, followers. There will be a forever binding, will not be loosed ever, inescapable judgment for them. But that day is not yet, okay? That's important for us to understand in what we're doing all right, bear with me. This is important. Um, why this is important, what this means. It means, number one, that we need to understand that it's Jesus who exerts this power over the enemy, not us. We just enforce from our position of authority with Christ or in Christ. Number two, yes, there definitionally seems to be a reality that in some degree, the enemy is constrained in the freedom they once had over an individual when the power of the kingdom comes against it, uh, and the loosening of those grips occurs when the person uh, is delivered from the power, influence, or control over them. For example, we see instances in scripture where um, uh, it, it's said to like the demon, like, be quiet, like Jesus is like, silence, don't speak right now. To a degree, definitionally, like you could say, that seems to be like a degree of like binding them. And that's exerting authority over a demon to, to keep it from being able to do something, right? So I'm not here to say there's no example, there's no like instance, you can't even like create an argument or a case for like, 
like enemies being prevented from doing something, from, from demons being prevented to do something. We see examples of that. And there's authority that Christ has over them, right? But also notice that the instance used here and throughout Scripture is limited to the demonization of an individual. Not only is there no specific example in Scripture of any person, including Jesus, like stating to bind Satan or demons in general, there's certainly not an example of someone being able to bind his authority over larger areas of influence. Okay, hear me on this, because I, I hear people all the time in different spheres of ministries and churches that, like, in the good intentions of their heart, are saying something that's going beyond their jurisdiction, if you will. For example, wrapped up in interceding for the city, right? We see, like, a, a spiritual stronghold of, of immorality, of idolatry or whatnot. And so the words will come out something like, Satan, I bind you, I bind the powers of darkness um, to, uh, uh, against um, a stronghold of, of, of sexual immorality over the city of Athens. That's coming from a like faith-filled place. It's coming from a passionate place. It's coming from a righteous place. But we don't see anywhere in Scripture where we actually have the ability to make that claim. In fact, I would say, I've heard that said multiple times, but yet here we continue to see that played out. And I would say that's because we've not been given the type of authority where we just get to go out and say, I don't like that work, I don't like that work, so I bind that, and it's now done with. Does this make sense? Caveat. Because I want to make sure that you guys understand um, that we for sure should be involved in the ministry of setting the demonized captives free and the power of the name of Jesus Christ. It's actually mandated by Jesus. There was one person who understood that. Jesus mandated, would it be helpful if I said commanded? Us to participate in the ministry that he came to do of setting the captives free. But we don't see a mandate to bind Satan's efforts to spread sin of these massive works and doings over areas. And this is a small side note. Nobody asked this, but I'm just mentioning it here. I also looked and did research, and I don't see, uh, I had struggled to, to be able to build a case to insinuate that we can command uh, God to do anything, or that we can command angels to do anything. That authority rests in him. Now, we should, again, for sure, pray against the strongholds that the enemy seems to have over, let's just say Athens, right? We should continue to engage in intercessory warfare but we need to be careful about how we are using the authority we've been given. I desire to see that stronghold come down. I don't scripturally have the authority or the mandate to demand that angels destroy 
those, those, uh, those, that evil influence or to bind indefinitely the evil influence from being able to operate anymore in the city of Athens. But I should intercede on the God who is above all those things to work and to move. To, to, and, and in that working and moving, he will likely send his angels. But I don't get to tell God or I don't, I don't assume a position of command over angels to say, go do this. It's not there. Holly? The question was, do you feel there's a danger in doing that? I'll say this, okay? From my experience, which is sometimes a dangerous uh, place to stand uh, when you're up here. Again, I'm standing on what we see in Scripture or not. The majority of people, when I'm speaking this, I'm not thinking of like individuals and be like, that person is leading people, is, is doing all this from a bad place of heart. The overwhelming majority of people I've seen and heard do this are coming from a faith-filled place. They are desiring to see God work and move, um, and they are, are wanting to rally people towards the cause. They're just using verbiage that brings confusion. And so my aim today is, and it's always been a, a lot in these things, is let's be clear and let's operate in what we actually have the ability to do so. We talked about several weeks ago, there was a question about territorial spirits, right? In the book of Daniel, we see that he had offered up a prayer. And it, I mean, this is a wild story, right? And, and the angel came. He's like, hey, listen, I came like, I, I came, I was dispatched with the answer to your prayer as soon as you prayed it. But I was held up by the prince of Persia, right? Which is a reference to um, a, uh, a, 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 demonic uh, leadership over a geographical area, right? So that's where the people get the term uh, territory spirits. Thank you. Um, but in no way were we mandated to engage in spiritual warfare with that. So to a degree, if you're saying, is there danger in that? Uh, on the negative side, if we're trying to engage in spiritual warfare against people we've not been given authority or asked to engage with, uh, maybe Maybe it is kind of a poke in the bear uh, situation, but again, like, this is where I personally struggle. I'm, I'm being your pastor, open and honest, saying that this is a big topic, and in no way am I saying for sure this is an absolute in every little thing, but I do tend to stand on the Lord has grace, he knows my intention, and I, 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 I am protected by him as long as I remain in his hands. But I don't want to get too excited and go ahead of where I'm supposed to. The Israelites were told and promised the promised land, but they needed to walk with him along the way, not go ahead and not remain behind. So we should be careful in all of this. And this is actually where we're getting to in what the rest of the Matthew chapter 18 verse is going to talk about. It's going to lead us into. So I'm going to kind of come back around to answer that a little more of how all of this is about. It's like, how do I do this then? Like the question comes back, how do I operate in the authority of scripture? How do I know what I can and what I can't? You remain so closely in sync with him in every moment that you see what he's doing and inviting you to join into, and you hear what he's speaking and inviting you to speak, that you're doing what he's leading you to do, and you have the authority as you are being obedient. That's a, that's a bigger lesson than... I, I don't need the audible affirmation personally. I just need to know that we understand that. 
When you're in sync with him and you know what he's asking you to do and it matches up with what scripture says we are able to do, how he operates and how he works, and then I go and respond in obedience, I am able to stand in a place of authority and confidence because I know what he said and I know what his word says. Does that make sense? Okay. Don't just pander me. It's okay if you go, I don't know what that means. All right, we'll talk afterwards. <laughs> yes, the point is in all of this, in, in so much of what we talk about in Scripture, whether it's spiritual gifts, right, uh, uh, responding by casting out demons, responding by praying for healing, all of these different things, we ask, like, what are we allowed to do? First and foremost, whatever Scripture tells you you are allowed to do, and I'm not allowed to do what Scripture doesn't allow me to do. But the point is not just operating with rules and rigid guidelines. It's a relationship that all of this is about being in relationship, in communion with him. And so when I know what he's asked me to do, and it lines up with what his Scripture tells me I can do, I can operate from a place of confidence and authority. Is that a little, little more? Okay. Awesome. Yes. Oh, I said a lot of things. Example of which? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think an example I gave a few months back was, uh, what if just for lunch we stopped and asked the Lord, where do you want to go? Where do you want me to go to lunch today? I'm hungry. I want to go to lunch. Didn't bring lunch. I'm going to go to lunch. Where do you want me to go? I want to be used by you. It may be the fact that he just wants to take you to Subway and nothing overly spiritual happens while you go there. He can do that. But it may be that the Lord place it on my heart, go to Subway. And while in line at Subway, I'm standing next to somebody on crutches. And the Lord puts it on my heart, pray for them to be healed. You better believe, like, I have a little more degree of faith and confidence that God might actually work to heal that person. Especially, I mean, this is the case. We see this in our people who pray before they go out and do street ministry sometimes. That he'll tell them, you're going to go to Subway, and you're going to see somebody on crutches. You tell me why the Lord would tell them that ahead of time if he didn't want to work to heal them. Now, you have a degree of confidence and faith that is higher than if you just randomly chose to go to Subway and came across somebody who's on crutches. You're a believer, so you know there's power. You know that God can heal. But like when you're in that place of, I'm doing what God's asking me to do, I'm where I'm supposed to be, and I'm operating within Scripture of what he says, you can have a confidence and an authority in what you operate. Uh, another side note, um, yelling or screaming or speaking more aggressively doesn't increase your authority. (laughs) I get it. I know those moments. And listen, when I see the enemy at work in somebody, I am mad. I'm mad. I, I am so mad when I see the enemy just keeping people in bondage. I'm so mad. 
I'm really upset when I see believers who are believing the lies, biting the lures, and living in a place of bondage to the enemy when they have been set free. And so I feel that passion in that moment. And I want to like, I just want to let the enemy have it, right? But I don't want to steal thunder um, from what I think Stephen's maybe going to preach on or whatever. But let's remember that it's not the person, it's not flesh and blood that we battle against. It's the spiritual authorities. And you yelling or being aggressive is not going to make a lick of difference. You're not going to make a demon more scared because you're loud. But you have every potential to really scar the individual. Okay? You being louder or more aggressive doesn't make you more authoritative. Does not increase your authority. I promise you, I have seen some of the most powerful deliverance moments with pastors that are just like, okay, no. No, no. Uh, demon, we're not going to mess with this today. I'm having none of you. You be silent in Jesus' name right now. You leave my brother and never come back. And I've also seen instances of, in Jesus' name! Sometimes we do that just because we're not sure. We don't have the faith. So, like, we're trying to, like, amp ourselves up in the moment. So, like, some of those laughters are because you know it's true. All right. Let me reiterate something here. Again, in no way am I suggesting that we should give up on interceding against the strongholds over our city to be broken. If you actually want to see a change, you should be engaging in spiritual warfare through prayer that the strongholds of the enemy would be broken over our city. We should definitely wage war in fighting for our city. Just make sure you're not trying to speak from authority that you don't actually have in whatever situation you desire. But beyond that, I want to encourage you to fight to see that stronghold broken over the city by going and trying to rescue the individuals who are being held captive to those strongholds. That's the ministry that Jesus came to do. That's the ministry that Jesus passed along to us. You want to see the stronghold of sin broken down in the city of Athens? Go to the people of Athens who are struggling with those strongholds. And let's finish by looking at the two verses following the example we already mentioned in Matthew chapter 18. Again, this is in the midst of Jesus talking about church discipline. He's saying that whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Jesus says this in verses 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So wildly misused in a lot of cases. <laughs> Sometimes it's a uh, when there's only like four people that showed up for the, for the meeting, for the, for the prayer meeting or for the service, you're like, it's okay where two or three are gathered like the Lord is in our presence, right? Don't, don't diminish his omnip, omnipresence, that he is everywhere by, by like relegating that verse to mean that. Oh, where two or three of us are present, he shows up. And don't diminish 
his absolute desire and heart for meeting you one-on-one in the secret place by insinuating that only when there's two or more gathered, then God shows up. Then he can be bothered to actually make a presence. It's not what that means. It also doesn't mean that if two of us or more agree on Ferraris, we get in Ferraris. <laughs> but see the thread through this context that he's talking about. When you bind something on earth, it will have already been bound in heaven. When you loose something on earth, it will have already been loosed in heaven. For where two or more are gathered in my name, when you honestly, openly, genuinely come before heaven, asking my thoughts, asking what should be done here, seeking my leadership, it will be given to you. It will be as though I myself are there pronouncing the binding, the loosing, the allowing, the refusing. And that's the confidence. That's the authority that we have access to. So here's my encouragement for us today. I think that it's because of this principle, not just for the sake of safety, that Jesus sent out the 72 two by two. What if we decided we went back in on seeing the authority we have in Jesus put back into display here in Athens? What if we took back up the mantle and responsibility and invitation of the Lord by going on mission to take back ground in this city by seeing captives set free. I want to invite us to respond this morning to that. Have we become complacent? Do we struggle to believe that we can have the same authority and power that Jesus gave the disciples? Some of y'all are looking at that and you're like, yeah, but I just don't know if I have, if I now, that, that we now have the same authority that like he gave to them there. No, you don't. You do not have the same authority that he gave to those 72. Why do I say that? Because you have more. Listen, he gave in chapter Luke chapter 9, he gave, he sent out the 12 with this authority. They came back. That was the inner circle. And he said, you know what? Let's do more. So we got 72 beyond the 12, the inner circle. He expanded that and gave them the authority. And he told us. Go to all nations. And he told us, you will be my witnesses because by the power of your testimony, you will defeat the enemy. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That authority that, they, that he gave to them from the 12 to the 72 was growing in how many people were going to be given it. But number two, That was before the cross even happened. We exist on this side of the cross, on this side of the enemy being depowered, defanged, and put to open shame. We are on this side of Pentecost. They live in a place where the Holy Spirit could come upon them. We live where the Holy Spirit is within us. 
So no, if you're struggling to believe that you have the same authority that they did in Luke 9 and Luke 10, you don't. You have a greater authority. So let's use it. Let's actually engage. I wonder, I wonder if a majority of us are not seeing this kind of authority lived in our life because we're not engaging in the mission that requires the authority to be used. probably going to walk more through this, but you actually want to see revival, I want you to ask the question, what will it take for it to happen? What will it take for, and insert your name, for me to see revival break loose? You want to talk about binding and loosing? Let's loose revival. Maybe God's waiting to see a people who will actually be on mission to do it. You stand with me. I'm going to give us some next steps. Different ways of responding this morning. Number one, commit or recommit to the mission. Maybe you need to physically represent this by coming to the altar and re-enlisting in the war. Be a good soldier of Christ. Not worried about the cares of this world but only about pleasing your commanding officer. I'm quoting scripture, by the way. Number two, take up the authority you certainly have over yourself and your own life if you're still struggling against the enemy regarding some area of your life, right? Stephen's gonna walk through to a great degree how we take this authority and carry it into the mission of ministering to other people next week. But if you're still struggling right here, you're like, I can't even get to that because I'm still struggling right here. If you want to talk about authority, you have for sure been given authority over your life. You have the authority and the ability to cast off the enemy. Repentance. Genuine trust in the Lord and being sustained by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit every single day as you die to self and partner with his work in you to see that freedom continued. Maybe you need to deal with that here at the altar this morning. And then lastly, if you have never given your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, I love you, but none of what I'm talking about is available to you. But it is, is offered to you. It is offered to all who call upon Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Who believe that what Jesus did on the cross and in raising from the dead three days later was for you. Confessing of your sin and trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. That's how the blood of the Lamb gets applied to the doorpost of your life enables you to be in a place where you conquer through the word of your testimony of what he's done. So if you've never given your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, I want to I wanna beg you. <laughs> Come find one of our prayer and ministry team members and say, I need to give my life to Jesus. Watch your eternity change. Father, I thank you so much for the work that you've done and for the work that you continue to do. I thank you that we get to participate in that triumphal 
triumphant victory openly. Have the victory in our hearts. Reveal to us, help us understand who we are and what that means because of what you've done. And Lord, we just want to open ourselves to say we're re-enlisting. We want to join the battle. We want to move forward. We want to take back ground that the enemy has wrongly tried to assert here in Athens. And we want to see the captives set free in the name of Jesus, working in us and through us. We praise you for the victory that we have and for the victories that are to come. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Phoenix Athens podcast. Be on the lookout for the Next Step challenges and bonus episodes. You can find additional ways to engage with our church on Facebook, Instagram, and our website linked below.